Thank you, Jacob, very much. I'm really excited about the opportunity we have uh, to serve an Afghan family. And uh, I'm sort of guessing not too far out there will be opportunities to serve Ukrainian families. I'm just guessing. Um, Bridge Kids, thank you so much for being here, and you are dismissed. The rest of us are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We look at a very difficult passage this morning. And I know as the kids are leaving, it's hard to concentrate. This is going to require some effort. It's complicated. And um, we're going to look at a lot of scripture because sometimes you really need to get the big picture uh, for some of the smaller parts to fit together. I'm going to start today by telling you about two different leaders of the 20th century. The first leader lifted an entire nation in a time of despair. He mobilized his nation against all odds with a clear vision and inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has a major impact on our world today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific uh, Revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet plane, the first human exploration of space, and unlocked uh, the mystery of nuclear energy. I know this is exciting, so you're still awake. That's good. When this leader died at the age of 56, his name was a household name. Practically everyone on the planet knew his name. The second leader lived at the very same time as the first leader, and he died just 21 days before the other leader did. This leader ran a school for about 100 students. He wrote um, a few books, and they weren't widely read. He was loved by his family and his friends. He was known for being intelligent and faithful. At the time of his death, practically no one knew that he existed. Which leader would you like to meet in person? You may be able to meet one of them. The first leader was named Adolf Hitler. Only a few of you were able to guess that. The second leader was named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor. And he was executed because he opposed Adolf Hitler as a follower of Christ. Hitler's uh, reputation, uh, many of you know, but think of this, about 17 million people were executed under his leadership from many different countries. We know that over 6 million Jewish people were executed during the Holocaust. Hitler started the war in Europe and in Russia that counted for more than 75 million deaths, both militarily as well as civilian. There is a world leader that will outdo even Adolf Hitler uh, when it comes to evil. And he will appear on the stage in the end times. So we're going to talk about him a little bit today. So uh, here we go. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll begin reading at uh, verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together uh, to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the... Rebellion occurs, and the man, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 
He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. I love this verse, verse 5. Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Don't you remember what I said about three weeks ago? You remember what I said two weeks ago? I know, sometimes I don't even remember what I said. Verse 6. And now that you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do this, to do so till he's taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming... The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that All will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. So I confess that the outcome, this is a difficult passage, and uh, there are many interpretations on how this passage should be taught. Of course, I have a few opinions, and uh, I'm going to share those. I want to remind us, we major on the majors and we minor on the minors at the bridge. We major on those truths, and they're really important. And then we minor on truths that aren't so clear, where well-respected Christ followers may disagree. And I just want to say that's okay. Now, what is major is that Jesus is going to return, and that we are to be ready, uh, we are to be faithful, we are to be watching for him. That's a, that's a major issue for all of us. All of the events surrounding that are not so clear, and you're going to see that today, and I'm going to make an attempt, and it's important because I think we can understand a lot about future things. So we'll start with verses 1 and 2. Don't be confused about the end-time events. Now, There is a lot of confusion about the end-time events today. There was a lot of confusion about end-time events in the Apostle Paul's day and in his ministry, and he even spent a lot of time instructing. How would you like to have heard it from the Apostle Paul? And not me. We begin with the subject in verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. And... uh, So it's about the coming of Jesus and our being gathered to him right here in one spot. And that's what he's talking about. He addressed this in 1 Thessalonians, and we looked at that two weeks ago. Um, And I believe this refers to what we call the rapture of the church. And let me just walk you through that a little bit. Um. Paul's context, 1 Thessalonians, is context to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, So uh, 1 Thessalonians, we'll just focus here on verses 15 through 17. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord, so we know that that's clear, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there's an order here. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead and there's going to be a resurrection of the living followers of Christ. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and Paul saw himself in that group and are left will be caught up together with them, those who are dead in Christ, who have been raised, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in in the air, okay? And um, 
And so we will be with the Lord forever. And that's the event we call the rapture, and that where that verb is to be caught up, the Latin term is raptura, and out of the we get the English word for the rapture, because you don't see the English word rapture anywhere in the Bible, and it really doesn't make any difference. But that's the context of what Paul is talking about here. The coming of our Lord and our being gathered to him. Now we have a problem in verse 2. Um, Paul begins, he says, now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, now, so this is written to the church, this is written to Christ's followers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy, somebody comes along and they say they have a prophecy from the Lord that contradicts what the Apostle Paul is teaching, it's not true. Whether a prophecy or by word of the mouth or by a letter, somebody wrote him a letter and said, I'm, I'm here to correct the Apostle Paul, um, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, this is a technical term, the day of the Lord. It's not a day of the Lord, it's the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? The concept, verse 2, um, it's about don't become easily unsettled or alarmed, whether it's a prophecy, asserting that the day of the Lord had come. Um, this is a technical term. It's both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Old Testament is rich with the concept of the day of the Lord, and it's often overlooked, and it's often just viewed as some kind of judgment, you know, judgment here, judgment there, judgment. And I think it focuses on the end times when God deals specifically with sin on earth. And let me see if I can unfold it for us. So it's an extended period of time that includes both judgment and blessing. Now, sometimes this is explained as taking a... So it's an extended time. It's not a 24-hour day. It's a period of time. I think it's a long period of time yet in the future. It includes judgment, blessing, and it actually ends with judgment again. There can be a parallel with a Jewish 24-hour day. A Jewish 24-hour day begins when? Sunset. Darkness. It's followed by light. It ends at sunset. Darkness, light, darkness. Probably there's a parallel with judgment, blessing, and judgment. Again, at the close. The day of the Lord. Uh, I personally dis, uh, believe this includes Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period where God will, will begin to bring a judgment on earth of sin. Um, so first we're going to start with judgment. I'm going to do a little survey here. Now, this is going to be a little bit complicated. I think it's important for us to get the big pic picture. I want you to see this is a technical term. Joel chapter 2, uh, verses one, 1 and 2. Joel chapter 2. So Joel has, uh, has a vision of the future here. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. That would be in Jerusalem. Let all who live in the land, that's Daniel's land and Daniel's people, and that's Daniel's city and Daniel's temple. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. Next slide. A day of darkness and gloom. It's a picture of even a physical darkness that's coming. It's gloomy. It's dreadful. It's depressing. It's a picture of judgment that's coming. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in the ages to come. This is not just something that happened in the Old Testament. This is something that's still future. It's never happened before. 
I think this may well be leading right here to the Battle of Armageddon. We'll get to that. Okay. Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is the same context as we just started in chapter 2. Before them, the earth shakes. Before this army, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? You want to try? I don't. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the, future, the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, Daniel's people, Daniel's city, there's a time coming when there's going to be a restoration for Daniel's people at the end of Daniel's 70th week. The promises that God made to Abraham, unconditional promises of blessing in a particular piece of geography called the promised land. And the promises that God made to David that he would have a king, a son of David, to reign on his throne, and that would be in Jerusalem. And I think there's a specific time period God has designated to fulfill this. Um, Verse 2, I will, I will gather all the nations. So there's going to be a restoration, but there is something that is ending, and it's the day of the Lord. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on, on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and they traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. God is going to hold people accountable. And this is going to be the battle of Armageddon. It's mentioned in Revelation 14 and Revelation 19. Stay with me. Continuing in Joel chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations, all the nations on every side. Now, tell me if this isn't a picture of Revelation 19. Verse 13. Swing the sickle. This is when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, but it's right here in Joel. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is right. Come trample the grapes, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion. This is Jesus. The Lord will roar from Zion. That's Jerusalem. And thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. So that's judgment. That's darkness in the day of the Lord. But there is a following, a blessing that follows this dark period Joel chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 God says then you will know that I the Lord your God dwell in Zion my holy hill Jerusalem will be holy never again will foreigners invade her in that day mountains will drip new wine the hills will flow with milk all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and, and water the valley of Acacias. This is going to be a time of great blessing. And the focus is going to be promises that God is keeping in the land of Israel. Daniel's people, Daniel's city, and ultimately Daniel's temple. Micah chapter 4, um, 
Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. The presence of the Lord will make it exalted. And peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is yet future. The day of the Lord is like this. It is an extended period of time. I think it starts in darkness, it's followed by a blessing, and it's going to end in darkness as well. It's going to be a very fast uh, when you, um, in, the, in the book of Revelation, after Jesus reigns on earth, fulfilling David's uh, prophecies. Um, it starts with a seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week. It's followed by what is called the millennial kingdom. A lot of people don't like that. It's mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 6. People don't want to take the thousand years as literal. I do. It's not a major issue if you disagree with me. Know this, you better have a biblical reason. Know what the scriptures say. One of the reasons that prophecy is so hard is because you almost have to be an expert in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. I am not an expert in those books, but there's a lot of information that I can know. Um, so um, let's go back to our passage now, the Second Thessalonians. I told you we need to lay some groundwork. The day of the Lord is an important concept. We're going to look at it again next week because we're going to look at 1 Thess 5, okay? It won't be as complicated next week because it's marathon weekend. <laughs> Secondly, know that certain events must take place before the end time clock starts, verses 3 through 5. Now, this is what everybody, everybody wants to know is when does the end time clock start? That's just a term that I've used here. What's the next major thing? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us the rebellion must occur first in verse 3. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come, the day of the Lord will not start until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. Sometimes Christians are the most likely group of people to be duped. Because sometimes Christians are really gullible about what they believe. You know, deception is the, it was what you're going to see here. You're going to see it in the, in the end times. And, the, and, the, and the, it's, the, it's the most powerful weapon of Satan to use is deception. It's about ideas. It's about distortion. It's about putting people off track. It's about uh, derailing faith. And... Uh, the, the best way you're ever going to deal with this is to know the truth for yourself, is to know the scriptures. What, what does God's word say? Let God's word be the final authority. So if you disagree with me, that's okay. Do you know what the scripture says? And make sure you do your research. Um, so we see deception is a huge issue today in our culture, you know, how long does it take you to find fake news? And um, how easy is it for organizations to manipulate the facts? We, we see it every day. We see it in politics. We see it in the, the world scene about reporting, uh, rep reporting the war in Ukraine, what's actually happening there. Um, so, um, the rebellion, there's going to be a great rebellion. There's going to be uh, uh, a falling away, uh, people turning from their faith. They're going to be dece deceived. The day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Paul brought this to our attention in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. He said, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Deception. There are going to be people who have 
supernatural skill and will be instructing people, leading them away from what Scripture teaches. And people that are well-intentioned, that don't know the truth, are going to start slipping away because it just seems to make so much sense with, with these, this viewpoint, these new ideas. And there's going to be a spiritual dynamic that is real and powerful and satanic behind it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Future time. Instead, to suit their own purposes, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Jesus warned us of this as well. We saw this in Matthew 24, verses 10 and 11. At that, at, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So Paul is saying this takes place before the day of the Lord begins. This must happen first. It must happen before the end times clock has a restart or reboot. Secondly, verses 3 through 5, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, must be revealed. Paul calls him here the man of lawlessness, sometimes called the man of sin. The apostle John calls him the Antichrist in 1 John 2, 18. Look at verse 3. Paul says, here it is, don't let anyone deceive you. Why? Because people get deceived. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man that's doomed to destruction, Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He's going to be the opposite kind of leader as Jesus, the antithesis of Jesus' leadership. He will desire to be like God. He's even going to want... He's going to want all of the attention. He's going to want glory that goes to God. That's why self-centeredness is such a big issue. It, it leads us to sin just immediately. And it's going to be such a big deal that he's going to go into the temple in Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be God. Jesus called it the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel called it the abomination that causes desolation. And this is in the day of the Lord in the end times. It's a time of judgment. It's time when things get really difficult on earth. And some commentators want to see this as sort of, well, there's not really a temple and the Antichrist doesn't really go into the temple in Jerusalem. Um, it's really more of the Antichrist just wants um, to say that he's God. And I think it's a little more literal than that. And of course, Paul says, don't you remember that when I was with you? I used to tell these things. The Thessalonians were a young church, and yet they had a lot of information about future things. Um, so he's called the Antichrist. He's called the man of destruction. In Revelation 13, he's called the beast. We're going to look at that. The dragon... And that's a reference to Satan from Revelation 12, 9. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. What an unusual creature. Well, this, is a, this is imagery. It's, it's apocalyptic. It's symbolism. It's just loaded with symbolism. I mean, it's hard. It's closely tied with the book of Daniel. And there are some, there are some clues in Daniel that help bring this uh, understanding. And I'm not going to go through all the details of it. But uh, the horns are symbols of power. It's a, it's a, a picture reminiscent, uh, reminiscent of uh, Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. He says, I, I saw 
The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like a, of a bear and a mouth like a lion. That's right out of Daniel 7. And their references to world leaders. Continuing, the dragon gave the beast power and his throne and great authority, satanic authority, satanic power to this world leader, the Antichrist. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So there's going to be somehow uh, somebody with a fatal wound, somebody who's experienced death, and there's going to be a dramatic healing, and the world is going to be overwhelmed with the power and authority of Satan behind this world leader. There's going to be a mimic of some of Jesus' miracles, and perhaps this is a, some kind of a mimic of the resurrection, that there's a power to bring a physical life back to physical life, not the, not the same resurrection that Jesus had. And it's, it's going to be supernatural. Um, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words, verse 5, and blasphemies to exercise its authority for 42 months. Um, this person will be a more powerful speaker than Adolf Hitler. And he will, he will be very charismatic. People will be drawn to him. I've watched Hitler's speeches over and over again. I can't see what drew people to him. And then when you see the words he said, they aren't even impressive, but there was something going on. And this beast in the end times will give, be given authority for 42 months. Well, how long is that? Well, it's three and a half years. It's 1,260 days. It's half of Daniel's 70th week. And it's not there, it's not called the tribulation, it's called the great tribulation because things really ramp up during those last three and a half years of Daniel 73. Verse 6, it, the beast, opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It, the beast, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Authority over all the people of the world. Um, this is a world leader. And not even Adolf Hitler had this kind of influence. Verse 8, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. This is crazy. And all whose names have not been written in the book of life, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world, he will be so popular that billions of people will worship him. There will be some believers alive whose names are written in the lamb's book of life that will not worship him and will not take the mark of the beast that's used to recognize their commitment to the beast. How will the man of lawlessness be revealed? And Daniel addressed this in Daniel 9, verse 27. So very early in our study, so weeks ago, we went through Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27, because it's really an important concept. And um, I'm going to just quickly remind us, look at verse 27. He, this world leader, will confirm a covenant. Uh, he's called the prince of the people to come. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering in Jerusalem. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed and is poured out on him. Very same event as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. So here's a recap of Daniel 9, 20 through 27. Seventy weeks were declared for Daniel's people, Daniel's city, and the temple in Jerusalem. 
Why? There were six things. To finish transgression. You think that's finished yet? To put an end to sin. Has there been an end to sin? I don't think so. To atone for wickedness. To bring everlasting righteousness. Do you see that yet? To seal up vision and prophecy. Do you think prophecy is fulfilled yet? I don't think so. And to anoint the most holy place. That's the one thing that's... It's really easy to see the first five. But what's he talking about? About the most holy place. Well, that would be a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. And it doesn't exist today. It's one of the reasons why... It seems like there will be a rebuilding of that temple at some point in the future, and that indeed the Antichrist will go into that temple and he will proclaim himself to be God. So, in Daniel's 70 weeks, for, for Daniel's people, 70 weeks are prophesied for Daniel and your people, Seventy weeks or seven prophetic weeks or a week being a seven-year period is understood by um, the Jewish people. Seventy weeks would be 490 years. Seven weeks in Daniel chapter 9 and 62 weeks makes 69 weeks and at the end of that 69-week period, Messiah would be cut off, meaning Jesus was put to death. The Christ, the anointed one, would be executed. He was put to death. Cut off means to be cut off from the land of the living. It's a use for death in the Old Testament. So 69 weeks have happened. And it seems like the clock has stopped. It's on hold. We are in a waiting period for that last week to begin to move. And that's what the Apostle Paul is unfolding here. And it's going to include an agreement, a covenant made with the, the God's people Israel in the land of Israel and Apparently, the temple will be rebuilt because in the middle of that 70th week, the Antichrist goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God. Now, I confess that's my opinion. I have no reason to change my mind. I don't know if I would die for it. Um, that's the best I understand Scripture here. Thirdly, expect the next end-time event to be a surprise. The next end time event to be a surprise. Now we're going to move through this a little bit quicker. So remember Jesus taught us to be watchful. He taught us to be ready and he taught us to be faithful. And, um, and when he returns, it's going to be a surprise. And, and that's what he said all through Matthew 24 and 25. We first understand that the end, end time clock is now on hold. Um, 69 weeks, and one week is left before the restart. And here we go in verse 6. And now you know what is holding him back, that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. There is a proper time. That would be God's timing. And he will be revealed. He will be unveiled to the world. Um, Now, Paul had already instructed them, and in verse 5, he'd said, don't you remember when I was with you? I used to tell you these things. So what happens? Verse 7, the end time clock will start when the one who holds back the man of lawlessness is taken out of the way. Verse 7, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. There's already an evil at work in our world. You, you probably know that one already. But the one the one who is a person who now holds it back, this, this secret power, will continue to do so until he, a person, is taken out of the way. Now, there's been a lot of guesses who that person is. 
Um, but this person has to be more powerful than Satan himself to hold the power of Satan back. So who was holding him back? Well, I think it's God. If you said Jesus, you're right. The Holy Spirit, yes. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He can restrain Satan's effort. He can determine the time. No one else. The time that this is to happen. The time for this to be revealed. It's a God thing. So um, how is the Holy Spirit taken out of the way? I think the answer is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. We've seen this. The rapture of the church, verse 17. And we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When Jesus returns for his church, those who are in Christ will be removed from this earth. The dead in Christ first, those who are alive will be removed, be taken to be with Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Christ. Now think about this. The Holy Spirit is just taken out of the picture. Do you remember how the Holy Spirit came the day of Pentecost? He came down. Jesus said he would. And he would indwell the followers of Christ. And that's what he's done since Acts chapter 2. Well, now he's going to be taken back. He's going to be taken up. Think about our world. At the end of the age, when perhaps, I don't know, billions of believers, certainly over a billion, I'm guessing over two billion believers, maybe more, I don't know, all of a sudden, they go to heaven. And the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth is different. Yes, God is still omnipresent, and he still will do his work in his time, but his plans are changing big, and he's taken his people out of it. And there's going to be a, a, a sort of a heyday for spiritual warfare. The enemy is going to have a heyday without the presence of believers working against him. And, and evil is just going to really begin to pour out. That's a marker for the end time clock. Because the restraining will be removed. Uh, verse 8, the ultimate end of the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist will take place at the second coming. I think here's the distinction. The rapture is when believers go to meet with Jesus. Second coming is when Jesus comes to judge the earth. I think there's a little gap. Maybe around seven years. Daniel's 70th week is the difference. Verse 8, and, the, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. That's exciting. And destroy with the splendor of his coming. Jesus is just going to show up and the Antichrist is going to lose. Jesus, all he has to do is speak the words and the, and the universe will do whatever he wants. Revelation chapter 19. This is, at the, this is the second coming of Christ. Jesus has just come in judgment in Revelation 19. John records it this way. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against uh, the rider on the horse and his army, but the beast was captured. This is at the end of the day of the Lord. Uh, the beast was captured with its false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf, and with these signs he delu uh, deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and we know from Revelation there's going to be some kind of, call it a, the, the mark, or some way to be identified as basically rejecting Christ and following um, the, the Antichrist. There's going to be a, a mark for that. And then it says the two of them, referring to the false prophet and to the beast, the two of them are thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, also recorded in Revelation 20. The, the, the Antichrist will be taken 
captive by our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be thrown alive into the lake of fire, and he will, he's not going to vaporize, he's going to suffer. Eternal damnation, eternal punishment. He's going to get a front row seat. Verses 9 and 10, the lawless one, the Antichrist, will display a miraculous satanic power. And we've already seen this, but here Paul just says it explicitly for us. We're almost going to land the plane, hang in there a couple of more minutes. The coming of the lawless one, lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. It's not the way God works. It has Satan's authority, Satan's influence, and he wants to be like God, and he wants to bring glory to himself. And, and it says uh, in, in verse 9, he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Signs are miraculous events that they're attention getters. They're to draw, draw people to see something. Jesus did miracles to draw people to the truth, the power of God. Satan will use miracles, miraculous events, to draw people away from the truth, to distort and to deceive. And this part, you know, is kind of scary to me because people just love miraculous things. You know, imagine if the Antichrist duplicated Jesus' miracles in some way, you know, some kind of attempt, and there were miraculous, because they are going to be miraculous. You know, I've seen things about... People uh, demonized who can actually heal physically. And uh, that's really scary when, it, when there's a really a demonic force behind it. Um, verse 10, And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So these miracles are just going to be deceptive. They're going to lead people away from the truth. And people will embrace, openly embrace, the works of Satan and his leadership in their lives. Verses 11 and 12, the enemies of God will be held accountable for their unbelief. All those who are in his camp will face judgment and accountability before God. Verse 11, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. God is just going to sort of give up on his patience with people and he's, you know, the Holy Spirit has been removed and the Holy Spirit is not convicting people of sins and, and judgment and righteousness in the same way he was doing when the church was present. And God's just going to let them go their own way. And um, they, will, they will have a free will. Verse 12, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but delighted in wickedness. And everyone who does believe the truth will be with Jesus one day. So, we've covered a lot today. And um, the best way to have clarity about end time events is through your study of the Bible. You need to own it. And I'm glad to teach, but you need to know scriptures too. And you need to be able to identify when someone is off the mark. Um, I don't have all the answers. I, I have a few. I know that Jesus is coming again. I know I'm to be ready. I know I'm to be watch, watchful. I know I'm to be faithful. I, I, I believe right now that the, what, we call, what I would call the end time clock is, is just on hold right now. Um, I expect the next great thing in God's timetable is for Jesus to come for his church in the air. Not because I'm looking for an escape. I just think that's the best way that, uh, that explains what Scripture teaches. That's just my viewpoint. Um, at some point, there's going to be a world leader make, make a peace covenant, a peace agreement with God's Israel. If you know history, before 1948, this just seemed crazy because there wasn't even a people in the land of Israel. They just weren't there. They, the land was taken away from them, and they didn't get it back until 1948. Um, and right now, they don't seem to be too interested in Jesus. 
And God isn't waiting on them to get interested to continue to do what he has promised to do. Uh, there's going to be um, an agreement with, with the people, and, and there's going to be a seven-year period of God beginning to judge the earth without the church present. And um, at some point in the middle of that seven-year period, I think the, the Antichrist is going to go into the temple of God, and he's going to proclaim himself to be God, and it's probably going to be on TV or whatever, whatever we have in those days. And then after that, after Jesus is coming, and he's going to come in judgment, and then he's going to usher in a time of great blessing, a kingdom of God where he reigns in Jerusalem. And I'm going to talk about more about that in a couple of weeks. Um, and that's going to be our last message on Ready or Not. And this will fulfill the prophecies to David about a king on his throne forever. Uh, there will be blessing in the land that God promised to Abraham. And I think Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. This is going to be a literal, physical kingdom. And then we're going to enter into an eternal kingdom. So, when you think about this, we are not commanded to be on the lookout for the Antichrist. People have spent all kinds of energy trying to figure out who this world leader is going to be. And they've come up through the ages with every possible thing. They've, uh, at some eras, they've picked popes. Some eras, they've picked presidents. Uh, Hitler was picked. Stalin was picked. Mussolini was picked. Saddam Hussein has been picked. Idi Amin was picked. And it goes on and on and on. We are not to focus on identifying the Antichrist. We're to focus on watching for Jesus, waiting for Jesus, being ready for him, and being faithful until he returns. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you so much uh, for our time this, together this morning, and I confess that I don't have all the answers, but I believe your word does, and um, it's up to us to research and, and to find out what we can know and to trust you. And uh, there's lots of things we can't know, and we trust you. Uh, help us keep our focus on your coming. To live today as if it really makes a difference. To live in a way that honors you. To live in a way that brings purity to our lives, as the Apostle John, Apostle John marks out. God, help us uh, to be watchful, to have anticipation. Help us to be ready that we walk with you each day. Help us to be faithful, to rely on you for the energy to just take one day at a time and to do the things that we have before us each day as we look for your coming. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.